them to Psalm 145. Psalm 145. And tonight's title is Praising God's Majesty and His Love. Praising God's Majesty and His Love. This is also a psalm of giving praise. And it's written in the form of an acrostic. That is, one verse starts with each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The outline of the psalm, or the structure of the psalm, whichever you want to call it, is as follows. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, we have an example, or I should say we have an emphasis on the greatness of the Lord. And then in verses 4 through 7, we have an expectation of that praise to be ongoing for the Lord. And third, in verses 8 and 9, we have an emphasis on the character of the Lord. And then fourth, in verses 10 through 13, we have a word concerning the kingdom of the Lord. Fifth, in verse 14, we have an acknowledgement or, or recognizing, we're recognizing uh, a recognition of the grace of the Lord to all. And then last, in verses, um, uh, our last verses here, we have an emphasis, an emphasis on the righteous grace of the Lord. Now, this is the last psalm by David. And he might have written some of the psalms that, that don't have his name given to them. But we don't know for sure. The theme of this psalm is a time will come when all people will join together in recognizing and worshiping God. Because God is full of love. And he satisfies all who trust in him. And the author is David. If you were to write one last thing about God, what would it be? What do you think the subject should be of David's last psalm? And if you know anything about David, and if you've been here long enough, and you've been a Christian long enough, and you've read the scriptures long enough, you would expect it to be about praising God. It's a kind of rundown of everything that David learned about God during a long lifetime of following closely after him. Let's begin now in Psalm 145 with verses 1 and 2. And David wrote, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. So... David starts this psalm by recognizing Jehovah as his God, the king. Now, this is a pretty important thing to say coming from Israel's king because it recognizes that even though David may have been king of the chosen nation of Israel, he says God is the king of all kings. So that makes God David's king as well. Not only is he king of all kings, he's the first and the last of creation and all people. He is your king because he made you and he rules over the, over you, whether you like it or not, whether you admit it or not. Now, what does this perfect eternal king deserve? Well, it was customary that when you came into a king's presence, you gave him a gift. And we saw that when the three wise men came into the presence 
of the newborn king. They brought him gifts. What can we give him when we come into his presence? What can we give God that he doesn't already have? What can we give him that he needs? Nothing. Everything is already his. The only thing that we can give him is our praise or worship. And that's what David is going to do here in verses 1 and 2. David tells us three things about his praise for the Lord. First, he says, notice, I will extol you. I will extol you or praise you or worship you. Praise is worship. And it's recognizing God for what he truly is. He is the sovereign. He is holy. He's just. He's righteous. He's merciful. He's awesome and majestic God. That's what we find in the Bible. Worship isn't coming to God to get things from God. Even though we can do that. And he even tells us to. But that's not the the, the purpose for coming to God. Just to get things. It's not even confessing our sins or asking for his grace. Even though these things are a natural outflow of worship. But it's coming to him to give him something. It's recognizing God to be God. And it's doing exactly what David does in the rest of the psalm. The second thing that we see here is David said, I will, he says, every day I will bless you. Praise you. David says, I'm not just going to praise God on the Sabbath. I'm just not, I'm not going to just go to church on Sunday. Even though that's the day that was set aside to do that. Or for us, the first day of the week, Sunday. But David's going to praise God every single day, Monday through Sunday, through good or bad. The third thing that David says here, I will praise your name forever and ever. This means more than just until I die. It means forever. Suggesting David's belief that he would be worshiping God in heaven even after he was through worshiping him on earth. You see, you will be worshiping God forever as well. And you'll be worshiping forever with all of the saints from all other periods of world history. As it says in Revelation 6, 9, John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Those who have been, have died since the beginning. We will one day worship the Lord forever with those saints. So why don't we practice worshiping God now? I mean, let's practice together while we're still here on earth. And what should we praise him for? Well, let's look at verses 3 through 7 say. David says, well, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty, David says, and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I, David, will declare your greatness. And they shall utter the memory, that is, God's greatness shall utter the memory of your great goodness. And again, and shall sing of your righteousness. And we just sang about his great goodness. What should we praise God for? How about his greatness? How about his works, his wonderful works, his great works? 
David is thinking about the greatness of God that he demonstrated in his mighty works. And the words that David uses here makes what he intends to do very clear. Works and acts. David uses those words repeatedly. Now, verse 4 doesn't mean that the stories about what God's done in the past will be passed on by the Christian community, though it's true. What it's saying is that each generation of believers will add to that old story the account of what God also had done with them. God continues to act for us and in us. When we recognize it or confess it, it's part of the praise that we offer to God. A good place to start praising God is when you think of God's work in nature. I mean, all you have to do is look around. The trees, the flowers, the birds. Looking around at the things he's created. Again, the ocean, the mountains. A newborn baby. A newborn baby. The blue sky on a clear day. The starry sky on a clear night. Flowers and animals. You know, you can't help but be moved to praise him. You know, many times when Kathy and I go to a, a nursery and, you know, she wants to plant some flowers and, and you look at all the... I, I'm amazed at just the color of some of the flowers. I've never seen them duplicated on paint chips when you go to Lowe's or Home Depot. I've never seen them duplicated. You can't duplicate the creating marvel of God. You just can't. And and you just, you can't help but be moved to praise him. But even more than that, even as wonderful as God's works of creation are, a person who has come to know God's goodness through their relationship in Jesus Christ, man, that goes even further. The greatest of all of his works are his works of salvation. For example, Israel. The power of delivering Israel from the bondage of Egypt and bringing them into their own land and where they are today. Well, the most persecuted people, I think, that ever existed. And Satan tried to stamp them out through Hitler's army. And yet they exist today in their own land, their own government. Because they're God's people and God has delivered them. And for us, more than anything else, God's work of salvation in our own lives. And I still, to this day, after almost 50 years of being a Christian, I still think, I can't believe it. Because I know what I used to be. I know what I used to do. I know how I used to think. When I was in Vietnam, and I wrote back home to my mom, I would use cuss words. And I'd say things that, you know, it, it, 
It, it was no big deal. It was natural. And then when my mom passed away, you know, several years back, and we started going through stuff, she had kept all those letters that I wrote in a box. And my sisters asked me if I wanted them. And I said, yeah. And he began to read them. And as I read them, I go, I don't even recognize that guy. The language that I used... And again, I didn't think anything of it. The things that I said, the stupidity, I go, I don't like this guy. And it was hard for me to imagine that that was me writing those letters. Now, I'm not an angel and I'm not a perfect guy. But I know How God has changed my thoughts, my thinking, my actions. I'm not that guy anymore. And some of it has to do with growing up and maturing. But man, what God does in a life. Again, I'm a new creature. When I go back and I read those letters. Because they're sickening. But who can do that but God? The greatest of all of his works is salvation. More than anything else. Saving us from sin through Jesus Christ. Even we can't totally understand his greatness. But you don't need to understand the greatness of God to tell others how great God is. God is great because His majesty it is wonderful. It's glorious in the heavens and above the heavens where He has set His glory. And when we're talking about his greatness, don't forget to speak about the glorious honor of his majesty and splendor. The splendor of the glory of his majesty, verse 5 is speaking of. And how brightly he shines in the heavens. The angels have to cover their faces because they can't bear the brightness of it. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.16, who alone, speaking of Christ, has immortality dwelling in us, dwelling in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. If we were to see God in all of his glory and brightness, we'd die. The other thing, that, uh, reason for praising God, how about praising his works? They're awesome. In this earthly world. The protection, think of it, the protection, the upkeep, and the control of all the creatures speaks of the Creator's greatness. 
So when we talk about his greatness, we need to look at the undeniable proofs of his greatness. And we need to declare, as verse 4 said, his mighty acts. And we need to speak of his wondrous works, as verse 5 says. And the might of his awesome acts, verse 6 says. We need to see God acting and working in everything that goes on. We should see God's hand in everything that goes on on the earth. And even though God uses all kinds of different instruments in everything that happens, God is the ultimate leader. And he's the one that performs all things. And most of his power is seen in the works of his hand. That is, in his providence, the things that he does in our lives. His providences are the mighty acts that can't be matched by any creature. No matter how strong they might be. And much of his justice are awesome acts. Now, his providence is awesome to the Christian, but his justice is an awesome thing to the dreadful sinner. A terrible thing. So every chance we get, we should talk about the mighty hand of God in everything. We should take every chance we can to talk about the the providing, protecting, guiding hand of God so that we may be in awe. How about praising him for his goodness? This is his glory, Exodus 33, 19 says. It's what he glories in, Exodus 34, 6 through 7 and says. And it's what we must give him the glory for. Verse 7 here says, they shall utter the memory of your great goodness. They shall utter, they shall speak of the memory of your great goodness. God's goodness is great goodness. God's great goodness can never be used up. Thank God for that. His greatness can never run low. He can never run out of his greatness, his goodness. Why? Because he'll always be as rich in mercy as he ever was. His goodness stays the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's unforgettable goodness. And it's what we should always think about. It's what we should always have in mind. And we should save the memories of his goodness to us. Because there are things that are worthy to be remembered and remembered forever. And the remembrance that we keep of God's goodness, we should tell other people about it. Hoping that they'll come to know it one day and be touched by it. But whenever we talk about God's great goodness, we must never forget at the same time to sing about his righteousness. Verse 7 tells us. Sing about his righteousness. That's why we sing the worship songs up here. We sing about, and we even sing about his great goodness. We sing about his righteousness. We sing about his holiness. We sing about his power. We sing about him. Him. To whom all glory should go. Because as gracious as he is to reward those that serve him him faithfully, he's just as righteous in punishing those that rebel and reject him. 
God is fair and he's firm. He's fair in his justice because he knows all things. He's fair in his justice whenever he he gives out that justice. And we can never argue with him. We can never complain about it. We can never refute his, his justice, his judgment against us. Why? Because he knows all things. Fair and firm justice is as surely in God as his never-ending goodness. And we need to sing about both. Verses 8 through 13a. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. Here it is. Notice the Lord is good to who? All. Even the heathen. The The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies over all his works. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the righteous and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. These verses, David speaks about the graciousness of the Lord. The Lord is gracious. Here, David rejoices in God's mercy. Just like the verses before had emphasized God's greatness by repeating the words that that had to do with his greatness, like works and acts. These verses here, 8 through 13a, they emphasize his mercy by using words like gracious and compassion and love, which is another word for mercy and goodness. Verse 12 mentions his mighty acts. Again, a sign of his love. There's also a mention of his kingdom. Reminding us that one part of God's goodness is his rule over us. He rules over us because we can't rule ourselves. Jeremiah says in verse, chapter 10, verse 11, he says, Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. That's why we need a shepherd. We need to be led. Solomon said in Proverbs 21, To every way of a man is right in his own eyes. The Lord's graciousness is also a work of God's grace when we come to see that we need him to rule over us. If we ever do. If we ever do realize that we need his graciousness, that is a work of God's grace. King Nebuchadnezzar took the glory of God to himself. When he went out on the roof, looked out over the city of Babylon, and said in his pride, is this not the great Babylon? Notice that I have built for a royal dwelling Of my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. Notice, I once and my twice. The only thing that's missing is me. I did this with my power. My majesty. And God judged him for his pride. And God took away his sanity. And God let him 
sent him out to the field where he was to live with the animals, the beasts of the field. And he even acted like them. And I have to say, you see, without God, we act like animals. God judged him for his pride and took away his sanity. He lived with the animals for seven years, but he finally woke up. He finally learned his lesson. And what he did, when he did, he praised God. And he quoted the words from from this psalm in verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. When a person has learned that lesson. That he is God, that he is king, that he is ruler. When they've learned that lesson, they've learned a lot. It's even more important to become a thankful subject of God's kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. Now let's look at 13b through verse 20. And your, domi- and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look expectantly to you and you give them their food in their due season. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all of his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. That's an important verse to to understand. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, but who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. The Lord is faithful. In these verses, David deals here now with God's faithfulness to his promises. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. He's not like man that he should lie. He takes care of us. God takes care of us and God provides for us. Paul said in Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, all of your need, not all of your whims. It's important to understand that. He will supply my need. Not that, oh, Lord, I sure, I'm praying for that real nice car over there, that real nice whatever it might be. And, Lord, you know, you said you supply all of my needs, and I need that car. No, No, I don't think so. God says, I don't think so. Unless, you know, again, it, it can be a need if I need it for transportation to get to work. But not just because, oh, I sure like that one just, just because. The status symbol. God helps the inadequate, verse 14 says. The Lord helps the fallen and he lifts up, lifts up those bent, that are, that are bent, bowed beneath the loads of, of whatever is weighing them down. Psalm 37, 24, the psalmist said, Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Here is the righteous man's promise. Even though he falls down, God won't keep him down. Now, God's grace doesn't keep us from going down. But you know what? It will save us from staying down. And we all know, I'm sure. If you, if you don't, you'll, you'll find out. Sometimes our burdens seem so heavy 
So much so that that we can't handle them. That we can't stand under the weight of them. Whether it's emotional or physical or mental, whatever it might be. Sometimes we think we just can't go on anymore. And David stands here at that, that, that dark place, that, that dark crossroad in his life, and he points to the Lord, who is the great burden carrier, the burden bearer. And if your legs are buckling under the load you're carrying, then you're carrying what, what doesn't belong to you. And if you feel like you're about to fall and you can't go on, turn to God for help. You know, I, over the years, I, I, you know, I've seen, I counsel so many people that, that say, hey, I got this going on and, and I don't know what to do. And I, I, basically, I'm saying, turn to the Lord, give your life to Jesus. And they'll sit there real quiet and they'll leave the office. They'd rather continue under the burden of whatever they're going through than give their life to Christ and have him relieve that burden. Again, if you're about to feel, if you're, you're feeling like you're about to fall, you can go to God. You can turn to him for help. He's there. He's ready to lift you up. He's ready to bear your burden. He wants to lift you up. He's invited us to lift. He says, come to me. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. The word laden there is speaking about a ship's cargo. Ships, if you've ever seen those big cargo ships, they carry a lot of stuff. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are, are, are like carrying a, a ship's cargo. And you're weighed down. He says, I will give you rest. And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. He says, and, will, and you will find rest for your souls, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You will never get more than you can handle. A person might be carrying heavy burdens of sin. Or illness. Oppression, depression, persecution, weariness. Whatever it might be. But you see, Jesus frees people from all of these burdens. He says again, let me carry it for you. Psalm 37, 4, the, uh, Solomon said this. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall, he shall bring it to pass. The word commit there literally means to roll over or to roll on. God is saying, roll your burden over to me. Roll it on to me. You see, Jesus' shoulders were designed to carry our burdens. He carried our sins upon the cross. And in this life, he will carry our burdens if we give them to him. If we come to him in truth and in faith. And Peter said, cast all of your care upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. That's one of the the awesome benefits of having this relationship with God. It's the privilege of letting him take care of our burdens. 
The word care means anxiety. It's the state of being pulled apart. It's when difficult, it's when circumstances are difficult. It's easy for us to be anxious and worried because it comes naturally. But if we are anxious and we're being pulled apart by these things that are weighing us down, we are going to miss God's blessings. And here's even worse, worse off. We're going to become poor witnesses to the lost. Because I'm handling my burdens just like the world. I'm freaking out. I have no peace. I have no strength. I have no hope. What am I going to do? Woe is me. From whence does my help come from? Where does my help come from? The Lord. The Lord. We need his inward peace if we're going to get victory over those fiery trials and we're going to bring glory and honor to his name. According to Peter, we must once and for all give all of our cares, past, present, and future, to the Lord. We're not to hand them over to Jesus one at a time. Well, Lord, these smaller ones, I can take care of these myself. I need you to take care of these big ones over here. I think I can handle this one on my own. Hey, pretty soon, those little ones are going to become big ones. And each time a new burden pops up, each time a new burden pops up, by faith we must remind the Lord and ourselves that we have already turned it over to Him. I must by faith remind the Lord and say, and ourselves that we have already turned it over to Him. The rest that Jesus promises us is love, Healing and peace with God. Not that your labors will be over. That's not the promise he's giving you. He will give you his love, his healing and peace. In those burdens. He's not promising that your labors will be over. What he's promising you is that you will have peace in the midst of them. You see, peace isn't the absence of problems. It's the peace of God in the midst of problems. And a relationship with God changes meaningless, tiring work into spiritual fruitfulness and purpose. And remember this, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Paul said, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. In other words, when you begin to say, oh, you don't understand, pastor, you don't understand, my friend, I'm going through something nobody else has ever experienced. Wrong. Because it says you are not being tempted With anything that's not common to man. Jesus was tempted in all ways, but never sinned. So he knows what we're going through. That's why he's a great high priest. That's why he's, he's a great sympathizer and he can deal with us. 
Paul said, with every temptation, God will also make a way of, of, of escape so that you can deal with it. You see, God promises that when I am tempted, I'm also given a way of escape. And when Jesus tells you and me that his power is sufficient for me to go through any trial and come out victorious, what am I to do with those words? Oh, God, you don't know what I'm going through. Oh, Lord, you don't know this. Oh, you don't know the man or the woman I'm married to. Oh, Lord, you don't know what I'm dealing with. Yeah, he does. Am I not to believe these words of God with total confidence? God is able to lift us up because his greatness is unsearchable, verse 3 says here. Secondly, he does mighty works for many in every generation, verse 4 tells us. Third, he's full of glorious splendor and majesty, verse 5 tells us. Fourth, he does wonderful and awesome works, verse 6 tells us. Fifth, he's righteous, verse 7 tells us. Sixth, he's gracious, he's compassionate, patient, and merciful, verses 8 and 9 tell us. Seventh, he rules over an everlasting kingdom, verse 13 tells us. Number eight, he's the source of all of our daily needs, verses 15 and 16 tells us. Ninth, he's righteous and gracious in all of his dealings, verse 17 tells us. Verse 10, he stays, I'm sorry, number 10, he stays near to those who call on him, according to verse 18. And lastly, he hears our cries and saves us, verse 19 and 20. That's the kind of God that we serve. I love what Oswald Chambers said in his devotional the utmost for my highest. He said, unless we can look at the darkest, gloomiest fact, trial, straight in the face, unless we can look at the darkest, gloomiest trial, straight in the face, without damaging God's character, we don't know him yet. Think about that. We damage his character. When we don't handle our trials right. Psalm 100 says we serve a good God. We are to enter his courts with gladness and with praise and thanksgiving. Showing people that we serve a wonderful master. And when we get to heaven we're going to see that that none of his saints, none of his servants are chained to that throne. Verse 15 and 16 says he gives food to all of his creatures. Jesus said, therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? The unbeliever worries about those things. Worry is inconsistent with our faith in God. So that makes it unreasonable and it makes it sinful. Worry is typical of unbelief. It's saying, it's saying God, I, I, I can't trust you to take care of my daily needs. Or I can't trust you to take, ever, take care of whatever my need is. 
And for those who have hope in Christ, it's totally foolish and unreasonable to worry about our physical welfare, especially when our Heavenly Father knows that we need all these things. That's what the Bible teaches us. That's not my opinion. That's what the Bible teaches us. To worry about our physical welfare is the mark of a worldly mind. Christian or not. When we think like the world, when we want what the world wants, we'll worry like the world. Because you see, a mind that is not centered on God is a mind that has a reason to worry. The faithful, trusting, and reasonable Christian is anxious for nothing, Paul said. And he prays for everything, Paul said. With thanksgiving, Paul said, and makes his request known to God. And he refuses to be conformed to this world in any way, shape, or form. God answer those, answers those who pray in verses 18 and 19. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth, he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear the cry, their cry and save them. Jesus said in John 14, 13 and 14, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. But when you read these kind of things, That's what's important about studying the Bible. Who, what, where, and when. Who was it written to? When was it written? Why was it written? Because you can take a verse like this and say, look at God, whatever I ask for. It says that it will be given to me. But this promise was made to faithful disciples only. That's the key. And I should have went on further and says, when you ask according to my will, God says. Asking according to God's will is the things that God wants for us. And if God wants those things for us, and I'm asking for those things, God says, I'll give it to you. This promise was made to faithful disciples only. And it's supported by other scriptures. James 5.16 says, the effective, fervent prayer... Avails much? No, I left something out. He said the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Psalm 4, 3. But to know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly, the Lord will hear when I call to him. Righteousness, godliness. Those are the prayers those are the, the, the prayers of the people that God listens to. Psalm 66, 18. But if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I'm hiding sin and I'm living a sinful life, God doesn't hear my prayers. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. You see, our sins... Cut the communication line between us and God so that he will not hear. It's not that he can. It's not that he doesn't want to. But he answers the prayers of the righteous and the godly. 
Not the perfect. It's not what it's saying. But those who have a heart for God. In other words, all through our whole life, God shows himself to be a good, caring, saving, persevering God. Now, for the first time in verse 20, it says the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. We see for the first time that that God here in verse 20 mentions the wicked. Notice, even in the midst of all of this praise, he reminds us that we live in a sinful world. We close with verse 21. He says, my mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. In verse 21, David finishes the psalm with praise and he invites others to join him. Join in in the praise. And because God answers the prayers of the needy and those who fear him and love him, when they call to him, they should all praise his name. And once again, God's greatness and his grace are reasons that we are to praise him. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful psalm, Lord. Father, I know I say that about each psalm, but it is true. God, your word is wonderful. It's full of majesty. So full of wisdom and the things that we need to hear, God. Lord, may you bless my brothers and sisters, God. Lord, help us in these days of uncertainty, Lord, to be anxious for nothing, God. To not be pulled apart by the things in this life, God. But help us to lean upon you, Lord, not our own understanding. To cast all of our cares upon you, Lord, because you care for us. To commit our ways to you, to roll over onto you, Lord. Any burdens that we might be holding on to, Lord, that we might be carrying, God. To turn over to you those things, everything, great and small, that weighs us down, God. Your word says you will hold us. You will lift us up by your right hand. And Lord, many of us need to be lifted up. We need you to hold us up, God. We want you, we ask you to lift up those, those weak knees and those feeble hands, Lord. And Lord, we can't, we can't direct our own steps, God. We need, we need a shepherd. We need you to lead us and guide us, God. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful word. And God, I pray you would be with each one here and as they go their separate ways. And God, begin a new week. Lord, keep them healthy, protect them. Watch over them, Lord. Bless their families, Lord. Bless their jobs, their homes, their kids, grandkids, Lord. Husbands and wives. Father, you're, you're just a wonderful God. Great and good. And we love you. And we look forward, God, to that day. And when we praise you with all the saints... From every generation. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Awesome.